Hey folks, Patrick Gale here. Welcome to another episode of the Makers and Shakers podcast. We're on iTunes, so feel free to rate us there. Tonight we bring you three more speakers from the Makers and Shakers Summit held at Ampersand Studios in Summersworth, New Hampshire. Here's your host, Vanessa Polychronis. My name is Vanessa Polychronis. I was presenting last year at Makers and Shakers, so for those of you who were here last year, you might remember me from that. Um, I was really honored uh, several months ago when Emmett approached me and asked if I would like to be on the board of directors for Makers and Shakers organization. Um, and so I serve on the board along with Ben Watts, who was speaking earlier. I'm really excited about this whole movement of Makers and Shakers and excited to see um, where this organization is going to head um, in the future. So there's a lot of things that I love about Makers and Shakers, and I just want to share two of my most favorite things about this organization with you guys tonight. So the first thing that I love is that this, this gathering is a gathering of some of the busiest people on the seacoast. And what's cool about it is that for most of us who are here that are presenting tonight, we're in constant go, go, go mode. We're running our organizations, we're running our businesses, and we're just going nonstop. So one of the things that Makers and Shakers forces us to do is to kind of stop and sit and reflect for a moment on our journeys and our stories and on our failures, our successes, the paths that we've chosen to bring us to where we are today. And I just think it's, it's a really cool tip that even if you're not um, presenting this evening, if you're not gonna be up on this stage, that I would suggest strongly that each and every one of you take some time in the near future to sit down and, and re reflect on your own journeys and think about all the steps that have brought you to where you are today. It's a really powerful tool. And to be proud of the journey that you've come on. The second point that I love about Makers and Shakers is that I would, I would bet any kind of money that if you asked any one of the makers in this room tonight if they considered themselves to be the best or the most qualified in their field or in their industry, they would laugh at you. Because the reality is that none of us are the best at what we do, but we have this passion. We have these things that we're passionate about, that we care about deeply. And I heard this quote uh, recently that I just think applies so well to makers and shakers and it's the idea that you don't have to be the best you just have to care the most and so as you guys leave tonight I, I hope you all leave feeling inspired um, after hearing all of these stories that you don't have to be the best or brightest in your field or your industry but uh, you, you all you have to do is have that passion and have the bravery to step out and make your dreams happen so that's what I love about makers and shakers so Without any further ado, I'm going to introduce the next speaker in tonight's series. Uh, she is a freelance writer by day and the founder of New England Independent Writers. She is a self-published author with three sci-fi books and one's children, one children's book. She's been writing since she was a child, and in her free time, she likes to go swing dancing and explore in the woods. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Ariel Sealing. Thank you. I'm going to start today by taking a quick poll. Raise your hand if you own an e-reader of some sort. An iPhone, a Kindle, a Nook, an iPad, a tablet. Most of you, I would hope, at this point. Second question. Raise your hand if in the last year you have downloaded and read a book on your e-reader. Excellent. Glad to see so many readers in the audience. Last question. Raise your hand if, after reading the book, you went online and wrote a review. Thank you. <laughs> uh, most people don't. 
An interesting statistic says that less than 10% of people who purchase a product will go online and review that product. But somewhere between 72 and 90% of people will use online reviews to decide whether or not to purchase a product. That means that less than 10% of people are influencing how 72% of people choose to spend their money. I think that's a pretty significant statistic. So does it really matter if you write a review of a book or a blender or, or anything? I think it matters, and I think it matters a lot. Everybody tells stories. Uh, I tell stories. This is a picture of me with one of my books. You tell stories via Instagram, Facebook, you know, whatever your medium of choice is. Parents and teachers tell stories. Politicians tell stories. Even the news tells stories. But stories are just words on paper or on a computer screen until somebody reads it, shares it, criticizes it, or gives it a minute of their time. And the stories that get the most support from the community, those are the stories that end up making a difference. At New England Independent Writers, we're all about stories. Our goal is to support independent storytelling via the medium of books. And our vision is to help writers, local writers, who are dedicated and strong, rise to the top of the independent publishing industry. What this means for us is that we're constantly looking for opportunities um, to find ways for the authors, local authors, to connect with the local community. We do this in a variety of ways. We might put together uh, an anthology of short stories by local authors. We might go to local events and festivals. We might give presentations like I'm giving right now. But the goal is to help authors find support and the criticism that they need to tell stories that are worth telling. What this means for you is that you have direct access to some of the best storytellers in the community. You can uh, help influence what stories are told and you can influence what stories end up making the difference. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the community, librarians in particular, um, trying to find ways that local authors can connect with and give back to the local community. I would venture to say that connecting with the community, particularly for authors, is one of the most difficult and probably the most important things that they can do. And I'm going to demonstrate with a story. Once upon a time, there was a guy I met who wanted to be a writer, so he wrote a book. He self-published it on Amazon. He got one review. It was from his mom. <laughs> and uh, he, nobody knows who he is. He didn't get any community support, but he continued. He wrote two more books, and no one still knows who he is. I'm going to tell a different story. Oh, let me clarify that. His book was bad. It was uh, poorly written, violent. It was, it, was, it was bad. Once upon a time, there was another guy who wanted to be a writer. He uh, wrote a book, self-published on Amazon. He got dozens of reviews. He wrote more stories lumped them all together into one book, and now he's a millionaire. This is Hugh Howie, author of the popular dystopian book, Wool. Um, so what's the difference, <laughs> aside from the quality of the writing? Uh, they're both, you know, they both want to be writers, they both self-published, they both wrote more books. The difference starts with telling a story that's worth telling. One of the stories is obviously not worth telling, but it takes off when it gets community support. 
Most authors that I know are somewhere between these two writers. I don't personally know any self-published millionaires. But I know plenty of authors who are either making a living from writing or supplementing their income pretty significantly. But there are still plenty of stories out there that are worth telling that are lying dormant because their authors or their writers don't know how to connect with and access the community. Every good story starts as an idea, as words on paper, as an empty canvas, or as a simple photograph. And then it needs community, it needs resources, and it needs time to grow. So if you find a story that you love, I encourage you to find a way to support it, whether that means donating money, giving your time and skill set to help the story have a larger impact, or sharing it with friends and family. It's like voting, except that instead of one vote, you get as many votes as you're willing to put the time and energy into casting. So why not start by writing a review? Thank you. Uh, the next presenter we have this evening, I'm very excited to be uh, introducing because he's one of my very best friends. Uh, this gentleman was born and raised in Rollinsford, New Hampshire. He is a red wine enthusiast and looks like a young Abraham Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> when I asked him what he likes to do in his spare time, he laughed at me and said, what spare time? Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Mr. Matthew LaBelle. Hi everyone, so I'm Matt LaBelle and I'm here to talk about my company, Backburner Designs, and some of the behind the scenes stories that you might not find if you went to my, my website or my Facebook page or if you've already been following me. So if you haven't heard of Backburner Designs before, I do a lot of uh, reclaimed wood furniture and rustic designs. I use a lot of reclaimed wood, upcycled materials, responsibly sourced lumber. So what that is, is like with reclaimed, we'll do a lot of barn wood stuff. Uh, I use pallet wood, wire spools. I'll use materials from uh, bigger shops that have cutoffs and, and scrap wood. Uh, so I get all the materials from, from those types of sources. So it all started a couple years ago. I built my first pallet table, which is up on the top left there. And that's still a table that I use today. Uh, and then uh, that's my first barnwood table that I built on the top right. Uh, so I built the, the pallet table, and my family and friends were coming over and telling me that it was really cool and that I should, I should try to market them. I could maybe build more and sell them. Uh, and at first I wasn't sure if that was something that I could do, but I ended up about a year later deciding to, to launch Backburner Designs and, and actually do that as a business. Uh, so there are a few more pictures down there of some of my other stuff. Uh, but if you really want to see more, you go to my website or go to my Facebook page, and there's tons of pictures on there that you can see. Uh, go down to 11, there's a bread shelf in the front window that I built. Uh, if you go up to Poppy Seed Studio, there's a couple uh, displays in the front window that I did on either side, the wood wall displays. Uh, so those are some places you can see my work just right here in town. Uh, so when I first started Backburner Designs, I wanted responsibility at the, at the core of the, the business. Uh, so I was trying to do everything reclaimed and everything responsible. And I was, I was also looking at other bigger companies like IKEA and Target and, and using them to help guide my marketing and you know, what kind of things to, what kind of ads to create, what kind of image to have. Uh, and then some smaller startups that were doing similar stuff to what I was doing uh, in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of, of the US and stuff. So I found this guy in Florida and he was doing rustic furniture and his stuff was really nice, but he was doing it all out of new wood rather than reclaimed wood. And he was able to do it a little bit cheaper and a little bit faster than I was because he could just go out and buy what he needed and I had to find what I needed and put it all together and take nails out. So it was a little bit more difficult for me to, to build a similar thing. 
Uh, and he was actually doing it really successfully. He was selling, he was shipping all over the country, and he was doing a really good job. Uh, so for a, a short while, I, I thought about just abandoning that idea of doing the reclaimed uh, and just doing that. And in the end, I, I chose not to. I stuck with the core. I kept that going. I'm really happy that I did do that. Uh, so a little bit of my background story, because it might not be necessarily what, what you would assume. Uh, so I'm, I'm a college dropout. I did a couple years at college in engineering, and it just didn't work out for me. Just had to, had to move forward with something else. So I ended up leaving college after a couple years. Uh, I also have no woodworking background. I've never taken a woodworking class. I've never done uh, any, anything really with woodworking. I never really thought that I would. It just kind of happened. Uh, I built that first table out of necessity. I, I actually needed a table. It wasn't just something I was trying to do as a business. It wasn't. It was. It just kind of turned into that after. I also started in my parents' garage. I didn't have any sort of shop, uh, anything really. I didn't really ask them if I could start in their garage, so that was kind of tense for a little while. Uh, so it kind of it kind of all started there. Uh, and then I also didn't really have any startup money. I didn't really have a lot of stuff. My dad had some, just like homeowner grade tools, nothing, nothing that you wouldn't find in, in probably most people's homes. And I also had no outside funding. I never took out a loan. I never had to go and find investors or anything. And I was getting paid for orders up front and taking that money and buying the tool to build that order. So it was kind of, kind of funny. I was able to fund it that way uh, and get going. So that's, that's kind of how it all started. And there were a lot of good things. There's a reason I'm still doing it today. Uh, but there was a lot, of, a lot of problems, like juggling work. I was working a full-time job because I still had to pay bills. Uh, I had a couple small shops that I went through after the garage that just weren't ideal spaces. And it was just kind of generally chaotic. It was kind of hard to, to balance everything and figure everything out. But now, today, uh, I just announced some big news the last few months. Uh, I took it full-time. A couple months ago, I quit my full-time job. So I'm doing this 100% now. I put out a ton of new projects this year, and I have a few more that are coming. And then I'm moving to 302 Main Street in Summersworth, so it's like just up the road here. Uh, so that's my new shop. I just started construction on that yesterday, and we're going to hopefully be in there within a couple weeks or so. And I'm going to be looking at getting some help. I've been hiring out some, some of the small jobs that I haven't been able to do, some of the background work and the, uh, like the bookkeeping and all that stuff. So. That's the exciting news. And there's actually a lot more space up there, too, if anybody wants more information on that, where it's going to be, there's plenty more space for more artists to move in. And then in the future, I, it's kind of funny, because when I started this, I didn't actually know where it was going. I never thought that it would be here today. And I really don't know where I'm going with it. Uh, but I do know that probably by the end of the year, we're going to be hiring some more people to help out and, and help build stuff. Uh, I also want to do more work with local businesses, get more, more window displays built. I've got a few that I'm working on right now. Uh, I want to do a few collaborations with some local artists, uh, some painters and stuff like that. Uh, and it, actually, if anybody is an artist here that wants to talk after, then just stop me and let me know. Uh, and I've got a couple secret projects that I didn't really elaborate on. One thing I will expose is that I think by the end of the year, I'm trying to launch a, like a wedding collection uh, that will kind of go along with that rustic theme. Uh, so that'll be kind of cool. If you want to connect with me after, uh, you, can just, you can just stop me here. Uh, I've got business cards and stickers over there. You can take whatever you like. I've got tons. I can put out more. Uh, go to my website. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Go on there. Follow me there. Uh, you need, my number's on my card over there. You can call me, send me a text, email me if you want to learn more, if you want to come visit the new shop when it's all done. Uh, and that's, that's all I've got. Thank you.
All right. Our next presenter this evening was originally from Texas. She's been in the New England area for about six years now. She's a self-proclaimed diver turned rock climber. I love that. Uh, and she has a passion for walkable and bikeable cities. Her favorite vegetable is the fiddlehead. And she founded the Community Canteen. Give it up for Tegan Lehrman. Um, so my name is Tegan, and about a year ago, I brashly set out to change the way we eat in this country. So the project which I've been invited here to speak about is a crazy dinner series that I started last fall with some friends of mine called the Community Canteen. And this dinner series and the small food business that has since resulted is our attempt to interrupt, if only microscopically, the state of the American food system by eating better together. And this really gets at the heart of what it means to be an entrepreneur. From my experience, I found that entrepreneurship is really just creative problem solving, identifying something in your local community and using your creative, social, and intellectual power to do something about it. And the problem, as I saw it, can be capitulated by the frozen pizza. In America, over one billion frozen pizzas are sold every year. It's a $4.4 billion industry. And when we're not eating frozen pizzas at home, we eat out about four to five times each week. Americans basically don't have time to eat real food. And while we all get it to some respects that we should be eating food that's more natural, that's supporting local agriculture and local farmers, we often find that local food is relegated to the ranks of fancy food served on small plates at restaurants that we can't afford. And more often than not, what we end up eating looks more like packaged, processed, not real food. And more often than not, we end up eating alone. What happened to the family meal and home-cooked dinners of yesteryear? To answer this question, the answer that I dreamed up was the community canteen. I wondered what would happen if we started to reimagine the social role of the restaurant. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a membership-based dining hall or cafeteria, sort of like what we had in college, that served locally sourced, sustainably sourced food on an ongoing basis and offered a place to gather with friends and other young professionals? So the three goals of this restaurant hypothetical that I was thinking of kind of answered a lot of problems in our society, both social, health, and economic, that I saw kind of all interplaying. The community-supported canteen would serve good food that would nurture people and nourish our bodies. It would provide active space that would inspire community um, and offer a space for eating communal meals together. And it would support local economies and local farmers. The problem with this hypothetical restaurant was that I didn't have money or a restaurant to open. So the solution was to do a pop-up, and we did. So last fall, some friends and I started to do these dinners. We held a CSA-inspired dinner series called the Community Canteen, where we did four dinners over the course of September through December on Tuesday nights at a brewery space in Somerville called Aeronaut. We charged $25 to serve a cafeteria-style meal over the course of our dinners, our community grew from 20 to over 50 people. The three goals of the hypothetical restaurant emerged again in our pop-up plan. We wanted to serve good food, and to us, good food meant wholesome, simple, home-cooked meals that were still thoughtfully sourced and carefully prepared. We wanted to create community, which we did in a variety of ways. We had our dinners at communal tables. We cooked one dish that everyone shared together. 
And we even made little name tags for people who came to each of our dinners and stamped with them with the days that they came. And we also wanted to engage with our local economy. So rather than making everything ourselves, we gathered food from artisans already making really awesome food in our community. We established partnerships with local farms and with local distributors and aggregators. And one of the themes of these dinners is that when we started doing them, we really had no idea what we were doing or what we were about, so to speak. We didn't have a mission statement. We were just about food and people and bringing them all together. And over the course of these dinners, things continued to change. We did tests at each one. For our first dinner, we were wondering if people would even come. At the next one, we wondered if people were interested in learning more about their foods, so we invited a turkey farmer. Um, at another dinner, we asked if did price point affect attendance, and we changed the price of dinner and offered a deal. In the end, what we realized, that people really liked our food. Um, and it kind of served as proof that good ingredients that are well-sourced and thoughtfully prepared make simple food better. But more than that, people really liked eating together, which, come as a shock, is really hard to do in our society. And since that, we decided our project was a huge success. Um, and we decided to launch a food business, which in its own respect is probably a dumb idea. But we're continuing to figure things out and to move forward, and we're continuing to try and do what we can to bring people together around good food. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Makers and Shakers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us online, and tune in next week for another episode. I'm Patrick Gale. Have a great week.